0: Hey everybody, welcome back to The Local Youth Worker, a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. Uh, We're about to get to my interview with David Ayers, and my good friend Matt Beham uh, joins us on the podcast. Uh, I contacted him very last minute, and he was gracious to jump on. Um, I don't get to say this in the interview, but he actually had another appointment that he had to... Uh, shoot out to, to meet at the very end. And so um, he cuts out right at the end, but he was very gracious to step in last minute. Uh, so I'm glad he's part of this interview. Uh, we're about to get to that shortly. Um, before we do that, just a reminder that we have another free Bible study uh, that you can download if you get rym.org slash Bible studies. Uh, our sanctification study is now out. That was produced by Tree Triolo. And we appreciate his partnership with that. Uh, there are now eight total studies that you can download for free uh, and utilize in your ministry however you want to. These are made to, to be able to hopefully adjust to, to whatever need you um, can, can utilize them, whether that's in small groups or, or large groups or a shorter amount of time, a longer amount of time. Uh, we hope it uh, helps you in whatever uh, your need is. Uh, right now we're getting to my interview with David Ayers as we discuss evangelicals and cohabitation. Hope it's helpful to you. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the local youth worker. Uh, If you've been tuning in, you know that this is season nine of the podcast. Uh, We're talking about biblical sexuality, and we're going to be dealing with uh, a host of issues. What we're hoping to talk about, uh, transgenderism, same-sex attraction, pornography. Uh, Last week, we talked a little bit about uh, teens and dating, and and I think we'll be digging into that a little bit more today as we welcome uh, Dr. David Ayers to the podcast. David, welcome.
1: It's nice to be here.
0: Uh, Why don't you take a minute and just tell our listeners uh, where you're from, what what you're doing, and uh, then we'll introduce Matt Beham as well.
1: Okay, well, I'm currently Professor of Sociology at Grove City College. Uh, I've had the honor of being here for 26 years. I was Assistant Dean uh, of Arts and Letters, then Dean of Arts and Letters, uh, then Interim Provost for 18 months before returning to the classroom full-time. So that's my professional background here. I've published uh, several books, and one that's currently uh, being compl- not being completed, but it's going through manuscript review, and uh, it will be definitely out this fall. Um, the ones that would probably be most relevant here is a book that I wrote called *Christian Marriage: A Comprehensive Introduction*, which was released in February 2019, which is as comprehensive as it sounds. <laughs> and um, and then the, a book that I finished uh, at the end of December, early January is called Beyond the Revolution, Sex and the Single Evangelical, uh, more than you want to know, and probably more than you wish you knew uh, once you read it. Um, and uh, that will be coming out this fall. And uh, that's completed. I have an article in Christianity Today that will be coming out in their April issue, which actually should be out in just a couple of weeks on evangelicals and cohabitation. I'm also giving that a deep statistical treatment for something that will be coming out a couple weeks after that uh, at the Institute for Family Studies, where I also have a number of of very deep statistical pieces uh, looking at evangelicalism and sex. Uh, This one, again, it will be on cohabitation. Uh, the one um, that I did about a year and a half ago was actually a two-part series called Sex and a Single Evangelical. Um, very, very detailed uh, and actually became, even though it didn't come out until the literally the end of the year, the end of 2019, it became the number nine most read article on their on their website. And Institute for Family Studies is headed up by a researcher who used to be with Pew, Pew Research named Wendy Wang and a very well-known Family sociologist named Brad Wilcox, a real fine Catholic gentleman, and uh, that kind of that has an international reach. Mm-hmm. So I've done a lot of podcasts and discussions of that interviews with Gospel Coalition and others uh, about my research on this area.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're looking forward to. To dig in into that with you, I mean, as we we discuss this, it's a sobering, difficult subject matter, but subject matter that needs to be discussed nonetheless. And before we jump into that, though, Matt, let me go ahead and get you to introduce yourself. You've been on the podcast, I don't know how many times, but uh, a few uh, at least.
2: Yeah, thanks, John. I'm excited to be here. My name is Matt Beham. I am uh, the pastor of Youth and Children at Redeemer in San Antonio, Texas. It's a PCA church. Uh, down here, uh, normally quite warm, uh, except for the freezing temperatures that happened a couple of weeks ago um, and the lot of snow. Um, but I, yeah, I'm really excited to be on this podcast. Um, just having worked with uh, youth for about 14 years now at Redeemer, um, I'm just um, also worried about the the trends that David is going to be talking about today, but also hopeful that as a church uh, and as a youth pastor, I can um, we can gain some wisdom and insight in how to uh, in how to grow our families and our students uh, uh, and in good biblical ways through this through this topic so.
0: yeah Matt and I think that's a good way to, to, to frame this discussion. Uh, as I said there's there's a lot of sobering subject matter to, to discuss but but also you know as we we need to be sobered to many of these realities to, to give the message of, of hope. And, um, David, the first time I think I heard you was on a mortification of spin podcast. I think you've done a few of those, but two, the specific yeah. two. okay. Um, the specific episode was entitled teens, young adults, and sexuality. Uh, those who listen to our podcast, it was referenced last week on the podcast, but people can go check that out. Um, and then you, you've also mentioned this Christianity Today article that's that's forthcoming. Um, why don't we just jump in there? Tell us a little bit about uh, this article, just kind of an overview of what the article is is dealing with. Obviously, uh, we cannot get too detailed because, I, you know, that's Christianity Today's article that you, you've done, but just kind of give us the essence of uh, of what that article is going to be detailing, and then we'll jump in from there.
1: I spoke at a, at a meeting of a regional presbytery for the Evangelical Presbyterian Church here and towards the end of 2019. There was probably 200 people, there, mostly pastors. And at that talk, where I was really diving into sex and evangelicals and laying out for these uh, pastors just how much they had not only lost their young people, but they had lost most of the old people in their church on anything like a biblical understanding of sexuality and practice. But we were dealing with cohabitation, which I had touched on up to that point. And I I said, would everybody here that has um, really been struggling with with cohabitation in your church and dealing with this directly, raise your hand. And without hesitation, literally, almost every single person in that audience was literally reaching for the ceiling. Hmm afterwards one pastor came up to me and told me he said our church will no longer do weddings because cohabitation is so common among the people in our church and accepted by the parents that it becomes a a fight every time we deal with it and rather than alienate people i just decided that I, i couldn't i could not address it and be honest to scripture in my role as a pastor so i just decided to drop weddings entirely Wow. Another another pastor at that church, we've stayed in contact, he literally had to let a church employee go who refused to separate from the man she was living with out of wedlock. Now, this is a paid full-time church employee, and he, he experienced a rebellion among his congregation. Um, uh, that might be overstating it, but let's just say a lot of people indicated that they had lost confidence in him as a pastor. Because he he and he they had literally offered to help to compensate her for rent, so that she could afford to live on her own and walk her through a process of marrying the man she was living with, and she flatly refused. You will accept this cohabitation, uh, or I'm going to basically uh, go after you. And so that's exactly what happened. And so the article really flowed out of that uh, because. Uh, So that's kind of where it's at. The the article in CT focuses very heavily on my interview with a cross-section of pastors and then references data from the National Survey for Family Growth, which is a huge, huge, huge survey uh, done by the Center for Disease Control. And then the upcoming thing with Institute for Family Studies is gonna get into that data in more detail than it would be possible in a CT article. But the bottom line is, is that the overwhelming majority of young people in churches today believe that they will be cohabiting today or at least are open to the possibility. As a matter of fact, about a third of them are certain that they will be literally certain that they intend to cohabit the uh, overwhelming majority of, of evangelical adults, but especially it very, it becomes much worse as you get younger, believe that cohabitation is acceptable even if there's absolutely no plans to marry at all. The overwhelming majority of young of younger married couples in evangelical churches lived with their spouse before they got married. Even cohabitation is now the new norm among professing evangelicals. And it's, it's better for people that attend church regularly or take their faith seriously or take the Bible seriously. But even there, the statistics are almost mind-bendingly horrible. The bottom line is, is that for all intents and purposes, Uh, we have uh, lost, um, and uh, just don't want to carry this too far, it is rooted in a long history of theological decline and absorption of of a postmodern cultural worldview that, that has absolutely penetrated at every level, such that the other thing is you cannot emotionally deal with it without the person feeling personally attacked. You are literally going after their identity. You're going after the core of their being, and and the fact is is um, the the Bible. Knowing the Bible would help in biblical ignorance is terribly uh, important. But the fact is is that they look directly at what the scriptures say and, and will explain to you right to your face why it doesn't apply to them. And 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 the fact is it's because they're bringing in this whole this whole baggage of worldview assumptions that we haven't even begun uh, to touch. And so the fact is, is that we, we've lost them way before, you know, we get to the cohabitation bay. If I could just say one more thing and then we can open this up again, is that I get all the time, well, look, with gay marriage and, and transgenderism and, you know, pastors getting phone calls from terrified parents who've got the public schools trying to treating their eight-year-old son as a girl. And doctors and f- wanting to force hormones, down, and I don't want to get into that. But then it's like, well, why do you care about fornication? I mean, mm-hmm. why do you care about cohabitation? Why does it really matter? Because if you can't get this right, you can't get anything right. Mm-hmm. In other words, if we don't take this seriously, why would people think we're going to take anything else seriously? And And, and by the way, when I deal with gays who say, you guys are hypocrites, you're really interested in homosexual sins, but you've been letting heterosexual sins go for years. You don't care if your elder's daughter is living with her boyfriend. You don't care if, if 90% of the kids in the church are sexually active. You don't care if you've got this humongous divorce rate, most of which were unnecessary and unbiblical. So why should we take you seriously on gay marriage? You, know, you guys really are not, and increasingly Christian young people are saying, yeah, we need to be consistent, but they're moving that consistency in the direction of, of adopting the world's attitudes on these other things. Hey, if, if cohabitation is okay, and if having sex outside of wedlock is okay, then, then um, you know, homosexuality is okay. And, and so what they're doing is they're, they, they are resolving the contradiction, but they're not resolving the contradiction by getting serious about things like cohabitation and fornication. They're resolving the contradiction by adopting liberal attitudes in these other areas. And for the youth workers and for pastors who are on the front line of this, it is tearing them apart. It is very, we, we, we just have no, I think, real appreciation for how much front end uh, difficulties they have when they, when they try to deal with these issues in their congregation. And they're not just getting it from the young people. They're getting it from the parents.
0: Wow. Um, to be honest, uh, speechless is just kind of where I am right now um it's like i don't know where to jump in on all that you just said i mean there is so much to unpack there i mean one of the things you said that i jotted down just a baggage of worldview assumptions that these you know people are bringing to this do you want to unpack some of those worldview assumptions that are kind of driving some of this
1: sure i mean in in my book on uh, the one that's upcoming. I lay out a biblical theology of sexuality, which is tied to a biblical theology of God, a biblical anthropology and a biblical theology of marriage because we cannot, you know, sex is intricately tied to marriage in God's economy. If we don't understand one, nothing else makes any sense. But then I lay out what a stream of top sociological thinkers have identified as the changing mode of thought moving into the modern era uh, sensatism, relativism, man is the measure of all things. Identity is central. Biology conforms to my desires. I don't conform my desires. In other words, I don't conform my desires to natural limitations. Natural limitations control the conform to my desires. And this goes back hundreds of years and it's been percolating for all this time. And so while we're catechizing our children, we're not, we're not explicitly applying for example reform doctrine to help them deal with these areas. So we're reciting and making them learn these catechism questions which is really great but the fact is a reformer would have been attacking would have been attaching that to the challenges in their world. They would not just be saying, oh well we're going to teach this the same way in 1550 as we do in 2022 So we're not addressing this stuff we don't understand it. Um, and so, you know, to, to call it relativism would be true, to call it uh, the, the, the exaltation of the self and the personal identity, the, the tyranny of thought uh, and the self, you know, all these things are ultimately underlying all this. And um, that's why, um, as Carl Truman pointed out, you can't tell a homosexual hate the sin and love the sinner. They don't understand it. Because when I was in high school homosexuality was something people did, but they also were other things, right? It wasn't their identity. It was just something they did. Now it's who they are. And you are, in fact, attacking who they are. They, you know, I have the right to be me. And then scripture bends to my perception of what makes me happy. So we have therapeutic deism, which has been laid out very well by Christian Smith. And I would say, by the way, that um, Carl Truman's new book on identity, should be considered a must read. Absolutely. Every Reformed pastor and every Reformed elder should be at least walking through the book. Yeah, I mean, because that's it. But if you look at my book, and, and by the way, I didn't reference his book when I was writing my book, but we work together and we know each other pretty well. And uh, we both love Philip Reef. We both kind of start with Reef. And while he appeals more to one set of thinkers other than Reef, and I appeal to a different set of thinkers. We're both basically see the same constellation of factors um, and, and realizing that our application of Christian doctrine has not kept up with what these kids are absorbing through the air, through their very skin. Some of the worst kids that I teach here, some of the best kids that I teach here come from Christian schools. Some of the worst kids that I teach here come from Christian schools. And what I mean is best and worst, in terms of their application of ideas if i if, if, if i've got a student with purple hair who's going to march out of my class because she doesn't like something i say about homosexuality there's a pretty good chance that i'll i could look in that person's background and find out they graduated from a christian school or a home school you know i think you would be absolutely shocked and many of them uh, many of the people that i know who've totally adopted a lot of these ideas were thoroughly catechized but were they was, was the person talking to them and really helping them to apply those ideas to the challenges that they were facing in their immediate world. What, what does the doctrine of the knowledge of God mean about these claims? And how should we think about these claims, which aren't really coming to them as propositions. They're coming to them as assumptions. As They are experiencing this stuff as natural. And they are experiencing us as unnatural. And there's also all, there's always a community under, uh, surrounding these things, an affirming community that they lose when they walk away from it. You're not just asking them to stop believing in premarital sex. You're asking them to stop, uh, to, to disassociate with and, and disrespect their own identity and all their friendships and the people that they love. And, and if you haven't given them something better, if you haven't given them real doctrinally grounded Christian community rooted uh, in the historical Christian faith uh, and robustly engaged with the, with the society around us, uh, then you haven't prepared them for. It. I mean, th- this is, um, these are really difficult times. And, and the fact is, is that we are losing. And, and I, I don't think that we're going to win by thinking we're winning. I think we're going to win by assessing honestly, the the situation that we're in and asking, you know, where do we start from here? Um, And and, and where do we go from here? Which um, means we need a long trajectory. We're talking about a reclamation that will take, I believe, generations to succeed in. Uh, Generations working out from the historical body
2: of Christ. This is some, yeah, this is incredible stuff, David. Thank you so much for sharing. Again, as John said, a lot of things to grab hold of. First, I think that was an incredibly cogent argument for the slippery slope, um, that we've lost the plot a long time ago um, in the way that we think about this. I think even Carl Truman in his book said that, you know, we're worried about um, uh, fighting against abortion, but we kind of missed the plot when we didn't fight against no-fault divorce. Um, And uh, so I suppose my question is, if, 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 outside of having a robust theology of gender, uh, sexuality, anthropology, what would you help, how would you help our parents and our and our youth workers? What kind of, what, what would you ask them or tell them, hey, this is really what you need to help your kids uh, go through or learn about or navigate um, in order to, to push back against the cultural waters that we're swimming in and to, to have a better, just to see Jesus as better to see Jesus's worldview is better than the worldview that they're living in. How would you help them to do that?
1: Well, I I think we do start with with a systematic understanding of what we believe applied systematically. And trying to reinvent the wheel on that is unnecessary. And and this isn't the first moment the church has been in in which we face these extraordinary challenges. Um, This is the world Augustine was facing. You know, this is the world Clementine was facing, you know, because there's a lot, many different particulars, don't get me wrong. But um, the, um, and, and we know even from Paul's letter to the degree to which Gnosticism and all this heretical epistemology and metaphysics was constantly pushing its way into the church. So he didn't just lay out Christian doctrine. You guys know from your theological training that to understand those books, you have to understand what he was addressing. And the people there knew that as well. So he he was applying Christian doctrine to the heirs of his day. Uh, But he was doing it not only only through teaching uh, or didactically, but he was doing it through the resolution of concrete problems, um, the um, meeting with people and walking alongside them. In other words, and there's a lot there that we don't see in the New Testament as to what was actually going on. So so the fact is is that when people say, well, we need to catechize our children, and I saw an interview with Carl Truman recently where he said, you know, we need to catechize his children. By the way, I know he and I would agree on this. I would say, yeah, we need to catechize our children, but that catechism has to be a dynamic catechism that's carrying on in conversation with the reality that's around them. I think the second thing is that the parents – And this would be true for me as well. We need to acknowledge the degree in which we've adopted these ideas and in which we've failed. Um, Now, I don't believe that we're supposed to draw pictures for our kids. You know, so, for example, um, I don't think my kids need or have the right to know the the specific details of all all the mistakes that I made. But I think they need me to own up to them. And 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 to have those conversations, like I, I didn't do I didn't do this perfectly either. And I had to sometimes learn the hard way um, why this doesn't work. Um, and and to be able to carry on conversations with them at that level. Um, so, so that we're really laterally dealing with them as human beings to human beings and stop viewing them that because the manifestation of their sins is uniquely bad, maybe compared to what they used to be. The inherent sinfulness has not changed. Uh, we're not approaching them from, a, from, a, from a, a vertical perspective coming down on them from above. We're engaging them as fellow sinners that are, that are further along on the way. Because the fact is, one thing you get from my book, and certainly from Carl Truman's book, is that there's a long history there. This didn't just jump on us in the last 20 years. And we bear a huge amount of the blame for what's happened here. And that's even that's true in the reformed churches as well. Uh, nobody, by the way, in the PCA right now doubts that the PCA, in spite of a robust doctrinal heritage, um, is, is fighting these battles internally. Um, and um, and it's expanding, right? The same problems we're having in transgenderism, we're having it with race, you know. Uh, you know, it, it's just a different. It's a different set of uh, levers that we're pulling, but it's the same basic impetus or cause. So I think that to, 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 to basically encourage people to engage in sustained conversations and to also not be afraid to find out what's really going on. You know, one of the things I've said to parents for years, and it's hard for us, don't be afraid to find out what's in your kids' drawers. Don't be afraid to find out what's in their closets. Um, and don't hate them when you find what's there. Respond with, with truth, but really, w- really with love, and I'm not talking about pretended love or the veneer of love, but a deeply engaged, I really, really love you. I really understand this. I really see myself as either having done these things or capable of them. I understand why this has such a powerful allure for you. I understand why life is more difficult for you in many ways on these matters than it was for me, you know. When I was in high school, I graduated in '74. My teachers, Christian or not, all wanted me to be a virgin when I was married, you know. Most of them did. I, I guess that's overstating it. Most of them did, right? So there was a kind—I of, I had a kind of a coherent community in which I lived in, in which the Christian morality, at least on the surface, was pretty much praised. When I first became a born-again Christian as a young hippie there was nobody happier than a lot of the non-Christian adults in my life who respected the way that it changed me, right? That's not true anymore. They hate you for this now. And they, they see you as the enemy of their identities and, they, and as an unloving, hostile force. Now, for me to ask my 14-year-old to face that without any acknowledgement whatsoever from the heart that that's a really difficult thing for them And that I want to be their partner in it. And I also want to be there for them when they fail. Um, I think one of the things that's really killed us is this damaged goods scenario that the purity movement has thrust on us, right? I mean, if my daughter is not a virgin when she gets married because she's messed up as a teen, do I want her to forever view herself as damaged goods? Do I want her husband to view her as damaged goods or do I want him to view her as a redeemed child of God, washed, made new in Christ, um, and a Christ who, who empathizes with her weaknesses. And, and, and so I, I think that there, there's a way to connect this. And we tend to err on either the side of a sappy liberalism or a cold intellectual moralistic conservatism as opposed to the heart and the head fully engaged in helping these kids do some very difficult things while acknowledging to them very honestly, I don't know that I would be doing better than you right now. And in my case, I could say without a doubt, I know I would do worse than you because I already have done worse. I have six children. And one thing that's helped us is (laughs) basically they haven't exceeded me. Uh, nor do I ever want them to. Uh, but nevertheless, that's not true for most Christian parents. Uh, so I, I think there's a way to do this, that, 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 that they're going to find wholesome and honest and truthful. And there's a kind of an interesting finding from from our, our knowledge about alcoholism, that Jews have one of the lowest rates of alcoholism, and it's because all their kids drink at an early age, but they drink with adults and are taught how to drink. Now, just to connect that for a minute. We try to inoculate them from this I mean we try to quarantine them when what we really need to be doing is inoculating them and inoculating them means a measured engagement with the world around them um, that helps them to experience it firsthand and then develop those antibodies uh, as opposed to i mean I've been a Christian college professor since nineteen eighty six and the fundamentalist kid going crazy as soon as they're out from under their parents' thumb is such a constant reality because all they ever got was moralism and control, uh, but nobody ever taught them to drink, you know, taught them to engage these ideas, taught them to have conversations with gay people and atheists and transgenders. And um, one quick thing, we, my daughter shared with us many years ago, and I think she'd be okay with me sharing this, and she got our permission first. She said, there's a transgender man on the internet who wants to, who was intrigued by something he saw me say, and he just wants to talk about it. Is that okay with you? I want to be completely open about this. And we said yes. Now, by the way, that in every case, that might not be the right decision. But he wanted to converse with her about how he viewed reality and he said, there's no going to be no, I'm not going to get angry with you. I want to hear what you really think about these things. I think it was very helpful for her because she carried on a sustained dialogue with a transgender man from a Christian perspective with her parents, you know, in the background kind of, she could take things back to us and talk to us about it. And um, to me, that's inoculation as opposed to quarantine. And at the same time, she was engaging, I would have to say that she was engaging him in love, but without compromising the truth. And I think she's in a better position now to handle those ideologies than somebody who basically just was given a set of rules.
0: That's really, that's really good. And David, as we're talking about, just again, so many points to jump in on and hone in on and and try to uh, discuss here. Um, but but there's a lot of factors that that have you know, you know led us to this point. And I mean, one of the things that you're bringing up is, is the breakdown of the home. And you, you said uh, a minute ago, just about families kind of owning up to the idea that they've adopted certain ideas and that they've failed and, and uh, you know, talking to their children about this. And I'm just curious. Uh, my question is how has this message been received? Um, because I know you've written extensively on this, you've published, you're writing articles, you've been uh, doing podcast interviews, uh, you're, you've spoken at churches on this topic. How are those families in the churches receiving this, uh, you know, as well as, as pastors as well. well? What's some of the um, reception to your message? How has it been?
1: Well, first of all, my interaction with pastors has been exceptionally good. Um, I think the average pastor is deeply uh, in love with their congregations, is well aware that they have the talent and skills to have done a lot of other things that would be less challenging uh, and more financially rewarded. And they are deeply concerned about these things. They are often isolated and um, they get, and, and there's nothing wrong with this, but they even get theological help, but they don't get enough social science because social scientists tend to be a bunch of liberals who don't really care about them and their problems and as a result they're not giving them the facts and the data that they need to really find out what's going on and to find out how to find out what's going on Um, there's not many people like me out there interacting with them at this level psychology is a little bit different you know than what i do That doesn't make me great. What I'm saying is, is that I I found them to be very receptive uh, and very grateful. I have to be careful. So by the way, and I did this with both my books, including the one that's coming out. I've had several pastors review every word, looking for ways, particularly that I tend to be maybe too harsh or might lead them to feel like discouraged. Like they just want to give up. Like we don't, we want to know what the truth is but we need positive solutions and we want hope and we need to be, we need gospel encouragement to, to swallow this really, really uh, uh, this medicine that tastes awful, but it, it correlates with their experience. So the, the, I don't find them really upset about it. Um, I, I, I've taught two extended courses at a large Presbyterian church in Pittsburgh that I'd have to say was standing room only and uh, also led to some very deep conversations with people in that church, people who had three divorces, Uh, people who'd been molested. You know, in other words, folks who thankfully felt that I was actually, I want, we're gonna start where you're at because that's where Jesus starts. Not where you wish you were, but where you are right now. We're gonna address you there, we're gonna connect with you there, we're gonna love you there, um, and then proceed forward from that point. And I'm not interested and poking my fingers in your eye. I'm interested in reaching your heart, your chest. Um, I don't want you to be discouraged. um, On the other hand, um, and and this has been fairly initial because this was disrupted by COVID, but but I've had where churches have reached out to me and wanted to have me come that aren't already primed to deal with the stuff where the pastor hasn't already been concerned about it, isn't already addressing it. And I've found at that point that people find it very uncomfortable. They're not even sure if they want anybody in the church talking to their kids about sex. Um, And then meanwhile, they're not doing it or they're not doing it well. Um, And so, you know, there are a lot of youth workers in this country that are watching things come unglued in the kids in their congregation and the parents are telling them, we don't want you talking to them about this. We're we're gonna do this, that's our job. And it's like, but you're not doing it. Um, So yeah, you know, I think the youth workers need to be taught how to teach the parents how to teach, but they should not also be cut off from teaching themselves. And if you don't trust a youth pastor in your church to have sensitive conversation with your kids, you know, either repent or get rid of them. I mean, in other words, if you're wrong, repent for for thinking about them that way. And if you're right, you've got the wrong person, you know, but the fact is, is that uh, it should be a teamwork, and so I, I had an experience with a church recently where I was brought in to teach and um, there was a great deal of angst about it. Everything that I said was was fine-toothed checked before I was allowed to say it. And a lot of the people in the church simply refused to come. And um, that was, um, and maybe it's just they had a the different perception about how I would handle it. You know, um, I, I think people see what I have to say and they think I'm going to kind of do this moralistic shtick, um, and um, I don't. But I try not to shrink back from the truth. But but I actually think, and I know this sounds strange, but I think the experiences I had um, with the reluctant churches is more the norm. Especially as you get into more legalistic and fundamentalist wings of Christianity, I think this thing this thing frightens the hell. You know, when you're in trouble, you double down on what you know. Um, And the problem is, is that a lot of times that means you're doubling down on what's already failed. You know, it's like, you know, um, we see it in government all the time, but I don't want to get into politics. But, well, we just need to be more controlling, more watchful, deeper rules, more separation and isolation. Uh, We're going to put the walls up higher. um, And, um, you know, it, it doesn't work. And so... Um, if, if you're not used to engagement and you're suddenly the other thing that's that, of course, happens is, is the easiest solution is just to lie to yourself about what's going on. And the degree of ignorance among parents with what their own kids are doing is, is, is phenomenal. Um, and I don't say that to fault the parents I say I say that to, to address that um, because I understand why you don't want to know these things. I also understand why you need to know these things, and not just abstractly, you need to know them about your own kids. Can I,
2: can I ask Dr. Ayers a question? Of, well, I, I might have two or three questions here, so you can answer whichever one that you would prefer to answer. Um, just one of the things that, as you're speaking, um, I keep popping up into my mind, is just this idea of a theology of suffering, that that our um, our students have to grow accustomed to the fact that that in Christ we're crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to us. That there's going to be a lot of hard things um, that we're going to have to reject, and that probably, and not probably, but that also applies to parents and and the way that um, it seems that parents will prefer to um, to push the that difficult work of inoculation that you're speaking of away from our students and just quarantine. That's makes that's a little easier. It's it feels easier to shut our students in versus to allow our students to have some active engagement in the world because it's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult. It's going to require suffering, uh, and pain, and um, so I'm just kind of i wondering if you want to talk a little bit, uh, if you could speak a little bit more to some of the the pain and the the suffering that's inherent in um, that inoculation process, or and or tell or put push back and say that that's not a, not at all what you're talking about.
1: Well. First of all, if we don't have a good theology of suffering, then we're not prepared for what's coming. Um, These are not going to be easy years for the church and we will see a lot of falling away and that's going to, that's going to cut at the personal level deeply, but we're already seeing it in the ministry uh, with affections among people who've been close for many years. Um, funny thing is, is that um, I grew up very seriously Roman Catholic, um, and um, and one of the things that I've kind of noticed in the Calvinist world, for example, or in the Protestant world, is that sometimes, as a result, there's things that we don't appreciate. There's things that I thought were not appreciated from Catholic theology and practice, like um, why do Catholics pray on their knees? I think it's a good question to ask. Because at least that posture internally is the right posture to have before God, especially when we're repenting or petitioning him. That's what we do with earthly kings. We get on our knees. What I mean by that? Catholics have a very robust theology of suffering that has excesses. But as a Catholic, you learn to expect that suffering is part of the Christian walk and that nobody ultimately pursues God without suffering. That the great saints are people who suffered greatly and yet held um, sometimes we turn them into myths or to, into paper, you know, what two dimensional or one dimensional creatures. Uh, and we don't really appreciate Andrew Brunson just went through his hell, uh, in Turkey. And, and he spoke at our college, you know, he was in prison there for several years uh, with, without a great deal of hope and release. And he said, the biggest problem was, is that the absence of the presence of God is kind of like the deep thought was that if I'm in prison for the faith, At the very least, you know, I'm going to have these powerful experiences in my prayers with God. And yet he found a great deal of the time that God seemed very distant from him. Uh, That's in the book of Job. And um, so the idea that suffering is just part of it and that we, we should not only expect to experience it as parents, but that we should help our children to understand that that's part of their experience in life and part of what it involves to follow Christ, I think is, is, is very um, helpful. So, for example, sometimes when I've had conversations with students, for example, about homosexuality, and you're saying, well, this person is attracted to other men, and you're telling them that they can't act on that attraction, you're imposing on them a lifelong of deprivation and suffering. Right. Unless that resolves itself. And in many cases, it does not. Right. And this isn't the best answer, maybe. But one of the answers I have is, yes, but I'm not asking from them anything more than I ask of myself. Um, It's just sometimes in different areas. Are there many men who are not naturally monogamous or find monogamy very difficult? Uh, Are there many men who found that they fell in love with their secretaries? Um, And that they have to deny themselves in order to be faithful to their wife, And that sometimes that burden doesn't go away right away. In other words, yes, instead of saying, well, here's why you're not really going to have to suffer. Yes. And guess what? That's not qualitatively different than the other forms of suffering that God expects of people that follow him. Um, And and that um, there is a richer and deeper reward. Uh, at the end of that suffering, uh, some of which you may not experience in this life. I mean, a book of Job would be really helpful. But the fact is, is that uh, you may battle with your children uh, for uh, many years, Um, even, and you're going to make all these mistakes. You know, um, one of my third, one of my daughters, um, who came to just a powerful knowledge of Christ later in her life, talked about her experiences of of, of confrontations she had with me from her point of view. And I was remembering those times as a loving dad choking down all these concerns to go into a room and sit down and talk to her. But then I just began to lecture. And my younger children don't get as many of those lectures because I had to find out the hard way that doesn't work. Right. But, you know, you don't learn that right away. So my older kids kind of had to suffer through some of these, these lectures. Well, it was painful to see her put in writing what she was experiencing and hearing at those times, because then I was forced to deal with how badly I had failed in those moments, even though I was desperately trying to do the right thing. And before God, you know, I think I, you know, in other words, God was viewing that as Dave is trying to be a good dad, and he's following the light that he has but it ain't working. And what she was seeing is that, that I was just pushing her farther away. Um, that was a year's process. And some of my kids have been easier than others, but, um, um, you know, everybody's an expert on raising children until they had one <laughs> kind of a thing. Um, I, I think to, A, for us to expect that suffering is part of what parenting involves and B for us to, to help our children understand that suffering is intricately related to the Christian life. Um, But that the suffering they'll experience from disobeying God is ultimately going to be far more deadly and far worse. And um, that nobody really experiences ultimate... By the way, we don't get perfected in this life, but there is no sanctification without suffering. There is no easy path. And when I've talked to churches about dealing with the sexuality issues in a church, one of the things I say is that I am sick and tired of snake oil, quickie solutions. You know, we're going to have a rock band come in. They're going to have this altar call and everybody's going to come up and get a virginity ring. Um, or here's another one. We're just going to cast out demons, you know, and, and within a couple of days, you're going, to, you're going to be demon flushed and everybody's going to be good to go. And it's like, no, <laughs> you walk it out one 24 hour day, you know, at a time. And um, I was on a podcast uh, uh, months ago and kind of went into my testimony They say, how how does somebody get from being a drug-using hippie um, to a provost (laughs) in a Christian college? I mean, what does that path look like? And I said, one 24-hour day at a time. And a lot of those 24-hour days was abject failure, um, and sometimes getting up the next morning and feeling I shouldn't even try because I'm just going to fail again. You know, our kids feel like that a lot. Um, I can identify that. but We have to be able to have that conversation with them. But in other words, the path the path to holiness is a path through suffering. Another book that everybody should read, really, if they have it, is Jerry Bridges' Pursuit of Holiness. It's it's hard work. And um, welcome to the real world in a in, in a sinful uh, human f- flesh. So, and that's not to make light of it. Um, I, I think that's to help people understand it. Because then the other thing otherwise is that when they fail, they're going to want to give up. And they have to realize that Jesus was with them before they failed. He was G- with them as they failed, and he is with them after they failed.
0: Help us think about okay, what's the role of the youth worker in this entire scenario? As we, we've talked about, we've spoken about the, the parents struggling, and some parents wanting to turn a blind eye to various things, and uh, you know that partnership that you mentioned of the youth worker. Um, what can the youth worker do to kind of step into this uh, current issue and try to, by God's grace, be some assistance in this area?
1: I think the first thing is that they. They really need to make sure that they have their own rich theology and doctrine and that they take their own uh, advancement in their understanding of theology and scripture as seriously as the other pastoral staff do. Um, That they're applying it differently, but that they should take that very seriously, including, you know, taking the time to read books that help them to understand the larger culture and their longer challenges like Carl Truman's book. Um, I I think that's the first thing, is just for them to really inform themselves. I think the second thing is for them to really form a partnership with the parents and the other pastoral staff um, and to find ways to get everybody to function together as a team in which they play a unique role, uh, but they don't replace anybody else. I think many, many parents think that the youth pastor absolves them of the responsibility of educating their children. And I I frankly see the same thing in Christian education. I paid tuition, you know, you guys, that's your job. It's not my job. No, we're going to work together on these things. And that that might even include joint opportunities where the parents and the other pastors are there for different experiences and events and and talking to each other, you know, about those things. Um, And I did some of that in Korea where we had pastors, elders, seminarians and high school kids talking to each other about sex and for most of them it was the first time they'd ever had a conversation about that with each other literally the first time and they were just blown away i mean um but um so i think what if if I, th- I think that the um the other thing is that the youth workers need to make sure if they are if they're not already there and, and um I know organizations like yours and Walt Mueller's organization really encourage uh, rigorous doctrinal youth ministry as opposed to, you know, life's a beach, you know. So obviously there has to be fun and camaraderie and friendship and, and all those kinds of things. Uh, but the ultimately, uh, the, the, the doctrinal instruction and doctrinal application that is age-appropriate uh, is still very much the, the fundamental job, I think, of a youth worker. And um, the, um, that's why I think they need to take their own education and development very seriously. The other thing is I think they need to start telling the churches what they need to do their job. Um, and um, the, um, that doesn't mean that there's not a dialogue and disagreement, but they shouldn't have to fight for what they need uh, to, to do what they do well. Um, and to have their particular expertise respected. Um, And I think oftentimes uh, youth pastoring and youth working is too often viewed as a secondary role on a pastoral staff. I I don't think there is a secondary role. I think the preaching pastor may, may, may do the overall administration of the church, but why is that person more important than the one who does a hospice ministry or the one who does home visitations or the one who works with kids? They're all. Uh, if we look at what Paul said in the book of Corinthians, they are all an integral, unnecessary part of the body. And so, one of the things I think that youth workers should ask for their churches is where this is a problem, is that they should not be treated as secondary members of the pastoral staff, or you know, it's what you do until you can be you know like a real pastor. I, I just think that that maybe maybe down the line they want to be a senior pastor or a solo pastor. There's nothing really wrong with that. But what they're doing is uniquely important in and of itself. And um, done right, it can be a huge uh, help for parents. And so I've been in churches where where the youth teaching was done very well. And I've been in a church where it was really all about trips to the beach and fun and entertainment and diversion, uh, where a lot of stuff was going on under the nose of the parents of the youth pastor that nobody knew about, and we, we'd hear about it. Hmm. Um, but it did never had to be that way. Um, and, and in that sense I, I I think that those things would maybe be a good starting point
0: for that. mm mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that's that's very helpful and there's so much more I'd love to To pick your brain about, I will tell our listeners that as you and I have had conversations, uh, you know, pre recording before this, that uh, Lord willing, you'll have a booklet in our track series uh, that will be coming out. And and I thought, you know, that's definitely something that youth workers can utilize, uh, not only for their own education, but then also putting that in the hands of students and and parents. And so uh, we're excited to, to have some resource like that that can be. Um, an asset to, to those in youth ministry. Uh, I, I definitely I want to point people uh, to your forthcoming book, Beyond the Revolution, Sex and the Single Evangelical, as well as your forthcoming article at Christianity Today, uh, for people to, to be sure and check that out. But David, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and, and talk about things that are not always the easiest subjects to broach, but uh, things we need to be talking about nonetheless.
1: Thanks, I appreciate you having me. Absolutely.
0: buy
2: without money Oh come and feast without pay